following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Proverbs. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Proverbs chapter 1, verses 22 through 31, and chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing, and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've been in Proverbs now for a couple of weeks, a little over a month. And I think um, our big picture aim is that we will be people who are wise, Now, there's probably no one saying, I I don't think so. Uh, I don't think there's going to be anybody here saying this morning, no, 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 I don't want to be wise. No, no, rather, I'd be like to be known as the fool. And so when you want a good laugh, just call me over and I'll perform the fool for you. I don't think anybody here is saying that. Rather, I think that the big aim that even though we haven't even expressed it is that we be people who are wise in whatever God brings, uh, brings our way. Now, it's interesting in Proverbs, the first nine chapters of Proverbs is dedicated to speeches that are given from the fathers to his uh, son, the father to his son. And he's basically selling wisdom as a preferred choice over foolishness. So he's kind of doing a cost-benefits analysis. And it's not as if uh, wisdom is uh, is difficult to find. Uh, I I didn't have it read, but in in Proverbs chapter 1, it begins this way. Proverbs uh, 1 Verse 20 says, wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. And it's clear that wisdom, uh, personified as a woman here, is not trying to be elusive or difficult to find. No, rather, she is raising her voice in highly trafficked areas. Uh, We could think of Times Square. She's in the marketplace, and so we could think uh, think of the mall. And she gets there, and, and she's going where people are coming and going, and, and she's calling out. God is, is one who wants, doesn't want to be elusive. 
He longs for us to know him, the fountain of wisdom. So why is it so difficult for us? If none of us want to be fools, why is it so difficult for us to be people who actually embrace or grasp onto, onto wisdom? Well, first, there are competing voices for our simple ears. In Proverbs 9, the second passage, we find Lady Wisdom calling out to us on one side of the street with seductive woman folly calling from the other side of the street. And and both are calling. So in Proverbs 9, verse 4, we hear Lady Wisdom, whoever is simple, let him turn in here and then We find then the woman of folly in verse 16 saying, whoever is simple, come on in here. The outcome of whom we listen to is polar opposite. If we listen to folly, we start down a path that ends in destruction. If we listen to Lady Wisdom, the path leads us upward and the grave is left far behind. Competing voices. Secondly, Uh, The reason we have to be called toward wisdom is we are naturally born, as the great 20th century London preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, on very good terms with ourselves. And thus we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Not only that, we can clearly see the wrong in in our neighbor's lives and in their particular needs for the Proverbs, but not ourselves. So naturally born on good terms with ourselves. Thirdly, and related to the second, we naturally don't like to be rebuked or disciplined. We immediately resent others butting into our lives. Proverbs 12, 15, one of many, says this, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice which implies the fool doesn't. Fourthly, the nature of Proverbs demands us to slow down, think, listen, journal, pray. In other words, meditate. And this is not how we are accustomed to receiving information The internet world gives instant ideas. Nicholas Carr, on reflecting on this reality, writes, once I was a scuba diver in the sea of worlds, and now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. We are not accustomed to meditating. Fifthly, what looks like wisdom isn't always wisdom from above, James 1.15. James 1.15 says, there is a wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And then James goes on to say, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, before we think that we would never be people who would pursue demonic wisdom and that we are somehow above that, we need to recognize that it isn't labeled, you know, with the crossbones and skull, it isn't labeled demonic wisdom when wisdom comes our direction. Peter demonstrated this by doing what any sane, think about your safety and well-being, success-oriented individual would counsel when he rebuked Jesus, Jesus' plan to suffer and die on the cross. To which Jesus then replied to Peter, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, man-centered, reasonable, safe wisdom many times is demonic. While God-centered, unreasonable, risk wisdom is from above. Wisdom labeled wisdom is not always wisdom. Sixthly, Why we need to be called to action to pursue wisdom is that without the indwelling spirit of God, it is impossible to discern wisdom from above. We need the spirit of God. 
So let's pray. Father, um, I'm going to pray to you a little bit out of Psalm 40. You say, Father, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from us. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will preserve us. Father, evils have surrounded us beyond number. But not only that, Father, our own iniquities have overtaken us so that we have a difficulty seen. They are more than the hairs of our own head, our heart, our hearts fail us. So, Father, be pleased to deliver us. Oh, Lord, make haste to help us this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ who made it possible. Amen. Well, last week I used Tim Keller's definition of a fool as a kind of a working definition that we would use as we're looking at these different fools. We had looked at the simpleton and then last week the sluggard, and today we look at the scoffer. Let me remind you of that working definition. A fool is someone who is, one, out of touch with reality, and then secondly, should know better. There are two particular realities. I want to focus in on the realities because it really impacts this idea of being scoffer. There's two uh, particular realities we must come to grips with and measure life by if we are going to be wise. The first is the universe is ordered. There is a physical, social, moral, spiritual order about the world that we live in. And the reason that is that because God is the one who is at the center of it. He is the creator of it. And so last week, we looked at the, I think, the ninth speech, uh, Proverbs chapter 8, in which the father, as he's talking to his son, he's reminding the son that wisdom was present before and at the point of creation. That God's wisdom has created order, physical, social, moral, and spiritual order, so that if you live contrary to that order, it will not go well with you. The second reality that we must come to grips with and measure life by is that we are going to, if we're going to be wise, is this, the world is fallen, and it is, and you are broken. And it's the second reality that really comes into play for those who are scoffers or lean into scoffing tendencies. See, they would agree and even complain of this second reality. See, scoffers are born out of an experience, our shared experience of being in a fallen world where we are experiencing the pain and suffering of living in this world. And so the common ground that we all have with scoffers is that we all all are living in the same world that has fallen, and thus we are one really painful, heart-rending experience away from scoffing. Or it might be not one experience, But the erosion of the daily life of living in hurt and pain, living with a difficult spouse for 20 years, praying year after year after year for a loved one to come to faith in Jesus Christ and seeing no results, working in the same job with no hope of ever advancing, and a whole host of other examples that are represented by your very stories that are sitting here before you and standing here before you. And so the fallen world batters our worlds like the incessant lap of waves on the seashore, and it is an erosion that causes one to slowly drift into being a scoffer. Paul Vischer, he's the creator of VeggieTales, spoke at Yale, spoke at Yale in 2005, and he explained it this way. 
He says, for me and for many others in my generation, the real root, root of cynicism is personal. When we were very young, our parents broke their promises. Their promise to each other and their promises to us. And millions of American kids in a very short period of time learn that the world isn't a safe place, that there isn't anyone who won't let you down, that their hearts were much too fragile to leave exposed. And sarcasm, as C.S. Lewis put it, builds up around a man the finest armor plating that I know. And so you begin to hear the words of the scoffer, cynicism, sarcasm. We're all in danger of becoming scoffers as we more than agree with the reality that the world is broken and we are experiencing it today. And if we're not currently a scoffer, there's a good chance we are being scoffed at as fools. As you live out the four identities of missionary, learner, family member, servant, you have friends and family who think you are out of your mind. I mean, who would be, who wants to go to the neighbor who's just a jerk and be a missionary? Or, or who's who on Friday nights studies for Porterbrook for the next day uh, with no, nothing really to get out of it, no certificate that's going to get you the next level to the job in your, in your job, in your, in your workplace. And you're not going to get any more raises for this. You're out of mind. Or why in the world would you pay a bill for someone in your MC? That's crazy. And why should you sacrifice your skills and your time to help out someone work, their, work in their home and serve them? You're just a fool. You could be making good money with that skill. Good chance you're being scoffed at. So how do we deal with scoffers? Whether it's a danger of becoming one or being on the receiving end of a scoffer. Well, the answer is we are to address the scoffer with a kiss. We are to address the scoffer, whether it's someone outside of us or whether it is ourselves, we are to address the scoffer with a skiff. Now, where we're going to go this morning is this. We're going to look at three essences, the essence of a scoffer, the essence of scoffing, and then the essence of, of the kiss. Address the scoffer with a kiss. So let's go, first of all, the essence of a, of a scoffer. Look again at uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 1 and verse 22. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22. How long, oh simple ones, will you love being simple? Now we're all born simple, like child, children, naive and easily swayed. So the Apostle Paul even writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, that God has given particular offices, apostles and, and prophets and evangelists and, and pastors and teachers, that we may no longer be children, he writes, tossed to and fro by the waves and, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." Simpletons, people who are simple, are easily swayed. So keep reading. How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? The word fool here is the most common of the three words of fools in the Hebrew found, uh, found in Proverbs. And it means someone who's dull and obstinate. It's not, a, it's not an issue of mental capacity, but rather heart capacity. A heart capacity that is bent on rejecting God as center, as the focal point of life. So you look down to verse 29, Proverbs 1, and it says there, They hated knowledge, and look there, did not choose the fear of the Lord. 
And we define the fear of the Lord as simply putting God at the, at the center, at the focal point of one's life, that you measure all of life about God being in the center of your life. That's the fear of the Lord. So the root problem is spiritual. Notice back at verse 22, the scoffer has a particular, as a particular type of fool, verse 22, to delights in his scoffing. This feeds his soul. It strengthens his resolve to put himself at the center. And so you have that coworker, or you have the family member or the friend who can't just seem to leave it alone. Feeds their soul. And you happen to be their buffet. Is a spiritual problem that they have. The root problem is pride. The root problem is spiritual. The root problem is pride. See, pride is the seed of all sin. And we, and we saw that in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, where the temptation appealed to pride. See, the enemy of our souls tempted us to be, first of all, independently wise. And so you hear, the, you hear the serpent say, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Independently wise. Secondly, the temptation to our pride is to be self-sufficient and have no need of God. And so the, so the enemy says, God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like God. Self-sufficient, no need. And then the enemy of our souls tempted us to be self-focused. God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God knowing good and evil. In other words, you know what's good for you, no one else. Sinful pride is in each of us. And for the scoffer, it has been over time nurtured so that it is overblown. So that if you want to know the name of pride and arrogance, just call him scoffer. Proverbs 21, verse 24, listen to these words. 21, 24. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. The essence of a scoffer is in spiritual problems, a prideful problem. The scoffers above everybody else, or so he thinks, he will not listen or try to work with others apart from them bending fully to his ways, so that pride unchecked leads to becoming a scoffer. So there seems to be some kind of progression here. So I want us to look now at that second passage, Proverbs chapter 9, and look at verse 1. We have wisdom, uh, Lady Wisdom, calling out to us, and it says there, verse 1, Wisdom has built her house, and she has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts, and she has mixed her wine, and she has also set her table, and she has set out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. See, wisdom isn't trying to hide. She's not trying to be the best kept secret. She is making herself known and she's reaching out to her target audience, the simple. That's all of us, born naive, easily led, gullible, thoughtlessly lazy. Now continue. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. So that wisdom is offering up something that is truly refreshing and tasty. And overall, wisdom is offering up a feast. It's not just simply a new outlook on life. It's an invitation to come in and to feast with others, a new company around a feasting table. And she's persistent. Look at there, third call. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insights. It seemed to be that Lady Wisdom is saying, it is imperative that you respond to my call. Now the question is why? Why is this imperative? Well, here's why. The warning. 
Proverbs 14, 18. Proverbs 14, 18 simply says this, the simple inherit folly. Proverbs 14, 18, the simple inherit folly. See, the simple, like an inheritance, is that the simple, if he doesn't leave his ways, inherits folly. In other words, he becomes a fool. Now, here's what's interesting. The word folly there in in 14.18 is the second word in the Hebrew uh, for folly or fool, and it is one that is much darker. It is darker than the more common word. Its, Its prominence is in its moral insolence. That is, it is a deep hatred for a moral standard outside of himself. Such a deep hatred that the fool is vocal. And the fool knows no restraint. He has no sense of proportion and is impatient toward all advice. The scoffer is this fool. So the fool, the scoffer, number one, is an authority unto himself. So it's not surprising. An authority unto himself. So it's not surprising that as we we go to Proverbs 19.26, in the context of scoffers, we hear these words. "He He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother. So if you have no regard for authority, it is not surprising that the mocker actively rejects the most basic form of authority, his or her parents. And this fool, the scoffer, avoids counsel. Proverbs 15, 12 says a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. And see, the problem is the scoffer's desires, it says there he does not like to be reproved, and therefore he avoids it. The scoffer is so full of himself that he would rather go his own way, even if it leads to bad consequences, rather than humble himself and get counsel with the potential of being reproved. This fool, the scoffer, not only avoids counsel, but three, rejects counsel when given, when that opportunity is given. Proverbs 13.1 says, a scoffer does not listen to advice or excuse me, to rebuke. But what is so treacherous about a scoffer is that they look so self-assured. They don't look like fools at all. Matter of fact, they on the surface look savvy and successful. They're smart. They're smart with their money, ruthlessly. They're smart with their relationships, ruthlessly. They're smart with their ability to market themselves, to kind of, kind of make their image ruthlessly. Matter of fact, they can even come across looking wise. A high percentage of people who have done very well in business very well in the arts, very well in literature, very well in media, very well in academics, very well in athletics. A high percentage percentage who have done very well are scoffers. And they have become the cultural voice of our world. Managing the social media, managing, uh, managing all of the places that they will be interviewed, managing uh, how, and you, and how you will see them and what they will be seen doing, managing it in such a way that they seem to be wise because they are so successful, ruthlessly. To which Proverbs 14.6 says, a scoffer seeks wisdom in vain. He can posture himself towards wisdom because he is the center of wisdom, he thinks. And so all effort leads, ultimately, away from wisdom because he's out of touch with reality. The scoffer can be sophisticated. And yet, scoffers, the Pharisees, remember them? (laughs) The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um. They sought wisdom. They, they were the cultural elites. They were the academians. They were the political movers and shakers of Jesus' day. And they sought wisdom. They sought God's anointed. They sought the Messiah. 
But when he showed up on their doorstep, and when they stared at him in his eyes, they mocked. Scoffer may be sharp thinker and position to power, very successful, but without God at the center, the fear of God, all his supposed wisdom is vain. The root problem is pride. So what is his fodder? What is the root subject matter? What is the root objection that the scoffer has? The root objection that the scoffer has. Well, the root objection is God's character. And it's namely the four G's. Now, if you've been part of any MC, you'll recognize uh, the four G's. You've probably heard the four G's. Here they are. God's greatness, God's glory, God's goodness, and God's graciousness. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. But you do not have to live long in this fallen world, in your own fallenness, to wonder if God is great. Is he really in control, particularly when he could have prevented that tragedy or difficulty in your life? And because he didn't, you're tempted to say, is he really great? Or we begin to wonder in our fallenness, is God really that glorious? Particularly when we're offered a relationship or we're offered a position or offered an opportunity that really demands and demands our time. And, 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 and we realize that, well, we're going to have to give something up over here, but boy, this is really good. Is God really all that great? Or we begin to wonder if God is good when he doesn't give us our good, godly prayer, you know, like for a baby or a reconciled relationship or that good, godly prayer for victory over a soul-sucking addiction or an acceptance into a particular school and we wonder, is God really good? Or we begin to wonder if God is gracious when it seems that all of your attention to being a faithful church attender, being an MC attender, going on mission, it just really isn't paying off for what you really want. The scoffer begins to ask, is he great? Is he glorious? Is he good? Is he gracious? When we begin to doubt these things, now there's a good doubt, there's a good point in which we must question and wrestle with life itself. The Psalms are filled with the psalmist having these questions, but in the end, the psalmist always comes back to the point of faith, but the scoffer is the one who those good doubts lead to doubt, which leads to undermining his very character, and so the root objection is his, is his character. And then number four, uh, the fourth thing under this is the root result of a full-blown scoffer is rejection. The root result of a full-blown scoffer is rejection. So we go back to uh, Proverbs chapter 9 at verse 7. Look, we, we read there, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. See, the scoffer is a, number one, a menace to relationships. The scoffer is ruthlessly practical, and so he defines what is right and wrong in terms of that which benefits himself. And so he enters into relationships on his terms, and it's exploitive. And when that relationship no longer benefits him or breaks, he breaks it off. Or, look there in verse 7, he becomes abusive. The scoffer is utterly practical, so relationships are deemed valuable only by what he or she can get out of them. So, first part of verse 8, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. He's a menace to relationships, and he is particularly a menace to God's people. The surprising recommendation there of verse 8 is that we are to leave the scoffer alone. A scoffer is above everybody, or at least he thinks so. So what can you do when the scoffer is too superior to recognize any kind of uh, common ground? You just leave him go and drive him out. 
and everyone else will breathe a sigh of relief. See, this is what the elders were told to do in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, which says there, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Proverbs 22, verse 10 says, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. A menace to God's people. And a menace to society. A scoffer is someone who verbally treats something of value or something that is considerable as honorable and treats it as if it was worthless and deserving of scorn. And so God's word is strong. Uh, Proverbs 24 verse 9 says, the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. And Proverbs 29 verse 8 says, scoffers set a city aflame. One commentator writes, no man earns more universal detestation or deserves it more than he who wears a perpetual sneer, who is himself incapable of deep loyalty and reverence, and who supposes that it is his mission in life to promote the corrosion of the values by which individuals and society live. And ultimately and tragically, he is a menace to himself. Because a scoffer always sacrifices relationships, sacrifices standards outside himself, so that in the end, he's alone. Rejected by others and rejected by God out of touch with reality, that he's made for relationships, made for relationships with others and for the glory of God. And so we go back to Proverbs chapter 1, and we read verses 26 to 31. So wisdom says, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices." Root problem is spiritual. Root problem is pride. Root objection is God's character. Root result is rejection. Now at this point, we should feel the weight and concern of living in a world of scoffers. And we should feel a, a sense of concern of our own scoffing ways, potential of it. So how do we deal with a scoffer? Just like last week, how do you deal with a sluggard who loves sleep? You tell him to rest. So this week, surprisingly, how do we deal with a scoffer? With a kiss. Address the scoffer with a kiss. The essence of the kiss, to understand it, we have to go to another wisdom book. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. where we find the general tone of humanity bent on scoffing against God and against his anointed, that is, the Messiah, or in the Greek, the Christ. So look there, Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is, the Christ, saying... And here's their scoffing words, verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
which sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 3. Self-autonomy, self-sufficiency, self-focus. We don't need you, God, and we don't need your Christ. Now look how God responds, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He scoffs at the scoffers. And then he says, verse 6, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That means the Christ. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, the king, who's been set on the holy hill, he says to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of your earth your, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, here's the recommendation from God to the kings, to, the, to humanity who is bent towards rejecting, to scoffing. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, it's not enough to just simply know and believe that God exists and, yeah, he's out there, I believe God. No, he, he says, kiss me, kiss my son. A kiss speaks of intimacy. He desires an intimacy with you. See, the essence of the kiss is this. First of all, it's embracing God's anointed as king. You go back there, verse 6. As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He has anointed a king, and it's not you. My wife and I have been watching on Netflix. I hope this is okay for a guy to admit. The Crown, which is a biography about Queen Elizabeth. Whenever Churchill, the prime minister, comes into her presence gets an audience with the queen, what does he do? He kisses her hand. Acknowledging that she is the queen. Jesus Christ is the king, the son of God. To embrace him as king means turning from putting yourself at the center. It means getting in touch with reality and recognizing that you have been a fool to think that you are the center of the world, that you could be your own world. So he says, what, what you need to do is you need to kiss the son to embrace Jesus Christ as the only unbroken one, the only one who is king. He says, we're out of touch reality because we think we're the king and we're broken. Somehow we think that we can be smarter than all those around us, even though we're broken. And so he says, no, kiss the king. Get in touch with the reality that the world is broken, and it is, and you are broken. You are a really bad king. So kiss my king. But it also means, the second thing, and that is it means embracing God's anointed as Savior. So look at the end of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That the cross is that central point of Christ as the Savior. The cross is the place of refuge. And it is a cross that reveals that, number one, God is great, so you don't have to be in control. See, when life is, was, is out of control, feels out of control, and when it is not going our way, what we need to do at that moment is we need to kiss the king. We, we need to embrace the cross where at any time in history, if there's any place where injustice had occurred, because what we do is we look at our own lives and we look at our own experiences and the difficulties, and we either look back in the past in our story, and our story says, injustices were done to me. Life was out of control. 
Or we look at our lives today and say, wait a minute, I'm getting what I don't deserve. We begin to think about our relationships. We begin to think about our work situations. And we begin uh, thinking about how we've been overlooked. And the injustices of it. But if there's one time when really truly injustice had occurred, it's when the sinless son went to the cross. And the people there, they nailed him, and then they came up to him and scoffed at him and mocked him. And it seemed that everything was out of control. And God says, oh, no. Uh, I planned that. Oh, this is all in control. Because this is your refuge. Christ took what you deserved. So when life is out of control, you don't think God is great? Oh, just kiss the son. Just kiss him. And you remember, oh, yeah, that's right. It's okay. Life's in control. God's got it. God is great or God is glorious so we don't have to fear others. That is, put others at the center of our lives. When others threaten our well-being and demand that they be the center of our lives or where there is a fear that you might have of losing someone, someone you adore or someone you love, and they may be demanding more and more of your attention and so you fear to lose them, you fear to lose their, son, their friendship, it's at that point that you, you need to kiss the sun. To embrace the cross at the place where we find the concentrates of God's love. See, it's the unending attention of God that is there in the Son. There's a, there's a covenant love that the Son has made for all those who will kiss him. There is, an, there is an attention that he will place upon you that nothing that you could do will ever break that attention because it's his covenantal love for you. God is glorious, much more glorious than those who are demanding your attention. Number three, God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere for something better. And this is especially true when we're living that painful, heart-rending experiences and wonder if God is really good. It's that point that we need to kiss the sun, embrace the cross, and agree with his word. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is good, and number four, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. When the enemy plants in our mind that God is not pleased and that he wants more from us if we are to measure up to his standards, when we are accused as hypocritical by others because we have blown it, and we have fallen short in our own eyes, and we have fallen short in the eyes of others, it's at that moment in which God says, just kiss my son. We embrace the cross and rejoice that Christ died and more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, reminding the heavenly court that whatever self-accusations we make against ourselves or others make against us, he shows his scars. You know, here's what's so amazing, that God, a spirit, took on a body and lived among us, incarnation. But what's really amazing, he was raised from the dead in a body, a transformed body, and that he has chosen to submit himself to that body for the rest of eternity. And so he has a body like ours so that he can do this. It's paid for. It's paid for. For all eternity, we will see that. It's paid for. You're paid for. Paid in full. God is gracious. So kiss the sun. Embrace him not only as your king, but as your savior, as your savior king. We live in a world of scoffers. When you hear their scoffing, kiss the sun. We live in a world, fallen world, which attempts to erode our faith. When we live in a fallen world where heart-rending pain can be just around the corner, 
kiss the sun. It was interesting as we were singing, I'm not sure which one it was, maybe the last song. It's interesting. So God scorns or scoffs the scoffers. You know, it's interesting. He calls us to scoff as well. We sang it. You sang it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we sang that. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This is what we sang. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is, or, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You, you kiss the sun, and God says, now I want you to scoff. Scoff at sin and death. Christ is your king and savior. Well, Lady Wisdom set a table, and her message, if you didn't catch it, her message is this. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. When we take this supper, we kiss the Son as King and Savior. He gave his sinless body the bread. He shed his sinless blood, the wine. He paid in full the penalty of your scoffing sins. Would you accept his invitation to the table and kiss the Son as King and Savior? Father, thank you. Because as we prayed together, Psalm 40, our heart fails us, and every one of us here has questioned beyond a reasonable question your character, and we have scoffed at you. But thank you, Father, that you are a God who scoffs at our sin, scoffs at sin, scoffs at death, gave your son, died to the death we should have died, rose again to live a life so that we could live a life like his, that we could embrace him as our Savior and King. As we take this supper, we take it in honor of the King, the Son in whom we kiss today. We pray these things in his name. Amen.